Um, thank you so much, Don Mark, for that um, really warm introduction. Um, I'm really so excited, excited, can't even speak, um, and honored um, to be with you guys today um, at the Bridgetown Church community. And I am just totally floored by the experience that I just got to have these past couple of um, hours. Um, this is actually my first time in Portland. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and I've been here since uh, Friday, and I was just like, I've been blown away by the majestic beauty of this place. I can see why you guys love it here. Um, and I could imagine that it would be a really magical place to live. Um, and the community that you've developed here at Bridgetown Church seems to be a really um, powerful antidote to the loneliness that is being felt, um, of which we're really seeing the impact across our country today. So as John Mark mentioned, um, I'm here to speak as part of the Sweatshop and Justice series, I think that's right. Um, and I hope to use our time together today um, to share just what I've learned about the clothing that we all wear today. Um, and hopefully we'll have time also that this is a little bit more dynamic um, to ask questions um, and just have a conversation really about our clothing. Um, and it's not just about our clothing, but it's really the role that we have as citizens who vote, um, as consumers who make votes with our dollars, um, and also as uh, investors with what we tell of what we want from our companies. Um, and first I'm gonna cover the problem and it's shocking and it's bad, but I don't want anybody to get discouraged because I think the best part and the part that I really want to focus on um, is that there is so much that we can do to solve this problem. It's not something that's out there. It's really something that we each as individuals have the power really to control. And it's also not about making a sacrifice. Um, it's about finding what you love. It's about finding your own sense of style and going with that. So first to talk about the problem. So scientists have been warm, warning us about pollution. They've been talking about how it's wreaking havoc on our planet. They're talking about how our current systems are starving our soil of nutrients and are destroying our precious fresh water sources. Our ice caps are melting and threatening not just the polar bears we see in those ads, but our own coastal cities. In Oregon, climate change threat includes erosion and flooding on the coast, an increase in wildfires in the Cascades, and decreased snow peak in eastern Oregon, which could lead to warming streams and rivers that could limit the range of fish species like salmon and trout. And then from a human rights development and employment stand standpoint, we hear the statistics and we may even experience the struggles ourselves. Half of the global population lives on less than two and a half dollars a day. Meanwhile, in this country, wages are stagnating and the top eight wealthiest men in the world hold the same wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion people on our planet. <clears throat> Those aren't super happy statistics. <laughs> um, as concerned local and global citizens, we're really given a um, few options to stop this. So I wanted to get to hear from you kind of what are you told to do as citizens to 
stop climate change or to end poverty, whatever, anybody can spit it out. Recycle. Recycle, that's the first one on my list too. Go vegan, Go vegan. woo woo. <laughs> Sorry? Fair trade. Fair trade, that's a good one. Carpool. Carpool. Bike, kind of similar theme. <laughs> Pardon? Skateboard. Skateboard, renewable energy, all good ones. Sorry, one more? Sorry? Oh, public transportation. Okay, good. Okay, you've hit all the ones on my list. So those are a few things, right? But does that feel like it's sufficient to solve our world's problems? No, right, okay. That's the same feeling that I have. We're told that the world is kind of coming to an end and we're given recycling as our solution. <laughs> and the other thing is, there's this feeling that it's kind of for government to handle and it's kind of out there, this problem of the environment or of labor and human rights issues. And yet if we look at our government today, there's not much hope in what they're offering. Um, but what if I told you that actually, we are the ones that hold the power, and we, as citizen consumers, wear that power every day. That power, of course, is our clothing. So no one has really talked about this yet, but quietly, as if kind of under the radar, the apparel industry has become one of the most polluting industries and it's locking many of the world's poor, particularly women, in a cycle of poverty. So I want to spend some time unpacking how we got to now and then what we can do to take back control. Because we're going to be able to answer that very challenging question of I have nothing to wear, um, but also hopefully some of the world's most pressing problems. So um, it was actually ironically um, the company IKEA that said that we are at peak stuff. Um, and it's certainly true that we are at peak stuff when it comes to our clothing. So um, just to get a sense of how much clothing is made today, I'd like anyone to take a guess of how many articles of clothing were produced in the year 2010, which was the last time a reliable survey was done on the subject. And I'll give you just a couple of parameters. Um, there are seven, around seven billion people on the planet, and um, half of those people are living off $2.50 a day. So anybody, given that, throw out any number of how many clothing articles were made in 2010? 10 billion. A trillion, whoa, guys. <laughs> half of the world's population is living off of $2.50. Okay, okay, this is the first time I have ever done this where people have overestimated. <laughs> Um, the correct answer is 150 billion. <laughs> um, and we uh, have never had so much clothing and at such dirt cheap prices. So in 1960, the average American invested in 25 new garments a year. And I say invested because those 25 pieces represented more than 10% of the average American's salary. Today, we have almost tripled our consumption of clothing to nearly 70 pieces a year. 
That's adding yet another item to our overstuffed cl closets every week. And we buy so much stuff, and we have such overfilled closets, um, that we're, in fact, not even wearing our clothing. In fact, the, the latest survey of um, women was that we're wearing our clothing on average of seven times before we get rid of it. So all of this is adding up to that $150 billion figure. But this kind of dramatic increase in stuff didn't just happen out of the blue. We didn't just one day say, like, I want a whole bunch of stuff of really low quality. It's not organic to human nature um, to want to shop that way. And in fact, um, it has been entirely externally manufactured, this idea of us, the US, as the consumers. So to understand this, we need to go back to the Mad Men era of the 1950s. Has anybody watched that show? Okay, cool. You're allowed to watch that one, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Um, at the time, millions of products were coming off of production lines, so much so that for the first time, corporations actually feared overproduction. This was when industrialization was really going, you know, full-fledged. Just to give a little sense of this, production between 1860 and 1920 increased by 12 to 14 times in the U.S., while the population only increased three times. So there was a concern by corporations that they had come to a point where production lines were pumping out too much stuff and that people had enough goods and they were just going to stop buying it. So up until this point, um, products were actually marketed for their functional utility. It was about what a quality product this would be. This is how it's going to last. And you can actually look at the advertising from that time um, to see that. In fact, even if some of you are wearing Levi's jeans, the relic of that is still there, because they still use that original advertising, and it was all about quality. But when that shift happened to us having too much stuff, advertisers and CEOs and the government got together, and they came up with a plan. So as one leading Wall Street banker put it, Paul Mazur of uh, Lehman Brothers, which was still in existence in the 50s. He stated at that time, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. That's where the U.S. consumer came from. It's not coming from this intrinsic desire to buy stuff. It's coming because in the 1950s, a decision was made that the role of the citizen should not be to be a virtuous citizen, but to consume. And it was the marketer and advertiser's job was to produce this new type of person, the consumer. And our new role in society was then to shop. Let's just take that in for a second. Because it so often is seen as the truth that people want to buy, especially women. It's like always being said about us that we want to just purchase things. But 
that set, that consumer desire, that artificial consumer that was created, was also created for a very different time and a very different context. Because back in those days, the clothing that Americans wore supported well-paid American jobs. In the 1960s, 95% of the clothing that Americans wore was actually American-made. In the 1990s, 50% of the clothing that Americans wore was American-made. Uh, and today, it is less than 2% of the clothing that we wear is American-made. So I just want to pause here for a little bit. Um, does anybody know where the clothing that they're wearing right now, without looking at their tags, where it's made? China, Asia, not all at once. I, this is in ta Taiwan. This is entirely in indecipherable. <laughs> Any other grumblings that I could possibly hear? Oregon. Nice. Okay, we're all wearing clothes, so everybody else has to take guesses. Italy? Southeast Asia. Cambodia. Okay. Now, did any of you know that, or are we just guessing? Guessing. Okay. So I want you guys to actually take a look right now and know where your things are made. <laughs> can, you can ask a friend. <laughs> nice! <laughs> I just screamed. Okay, <laughs> I think we, we've, we've learned some stuff about our clothing, <laughs> and maybe each other. Okay, would anybody, a brave soul, like to now call out where their clothing is actually made? Oh, wow, that was resounding. <laughs> Vietnam. Bangladesh. Egypt, interesting, must be cotton. Pardon? England? Canada. Go Canada. <laughs> okay, so some of you mentioned um, the countries where production is being moved to those places where clothing really could be made the cheapest. Um, and vast marketing dollars were spent to convince us, the American consumer, to buy lower quality products. So our consumer spending was no longer to support well-paying jobs. It has gone to support the well-paid CEOs and the, owner of the owners of the companies that could sell us the most product. In fact, of the 20 wealthiest people on the Forbes billionaire list, eight have made their money from clothing. That's 40% of the 20 wealthiest people in the world. Meanwhile, the average salary for a garment worker in one of the most significant apparel producers globally today, Bangladesh, is about $60 a month. The shift from few quality clothes and a style that we felt in control over to today, where we are throwing out over 70 pounds of clothing and have lost our own sense of style, has been pushed on us most insistently, insistently from the creators of fast fashion. How many of you have heard that term? Okay, cool. Nice. Right, so fast fashion companies like Zara, H&M, and Forever 21 produce clothing for dirt cheap prices 
and release new styles on an almost daily basis so that we, the consumer, are driven back into their stores or online to purchase ever more dispensable clothing. So I'm sure we all have our own experiences with fast fashion. Um, I remember mine, it was the year 2000. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, but I was visiting New York um, for the first time. And I remember being really excited to go to H&M. I'd heard about it, and when I walked in to this huge store, I was totally blown away. It was really loud music, it looked cool, it smelled interesting, and now I know that that's plastic. Um, <laughs> but that smell was enticing, and the whole thing, I was just like, kind of mesmerized. And I walked out of that store with bags and bags of clothing. Um, and I could do that because it was all just so cheap. And now, kind of looking back in retrospect, it's not that I spent time thinking about what it was that I really liked. I just bought it because it didn't matter. The price seemed kind of inconsequential. And I hadn't really decided what looked good on me and what I really wanted. It was this decision that didn't seem to have another impact. But it turns out that those cheap, trendy items have an actually really high cost for the environment and for the people making the clothing, and significantly to us. So in order to get to the lowest prices, we have turned not just to the cheapest place of production, um, but the cheapest material. And now, again, because you've looked at the tags of your clothing, and by law it has to say what material it's out of, everybody can start shouting out to me what uh, material their clothing is. Now they should. Polyester, polyester. Cotton, cotton, cotton. Organic cotton. What? Acrylic. Okay, like five people are wearing clothing now. Anybody else? Denim, that's cotton, I think, normally. Wool, spandex, polyethylene, it's also polyester. Acrylic. Um, I hope there's not a fire in here, because there's lots of flammable material. Rayon, there's another great flammable material. <laughs> okay, so in order to get the lowest prices, we've turned to the cheapest material, which is polyester which is a plastic made from fossil fuels. Today, yeah, it's plastic. Um, today, polyester is um, now in more than 50% of all clothing. The fast fashion industry is actually fueled on this stuff. So it was in the year 2000 when I had my H&M experience, and it was um, that first year that H&M first opened in the US, and polyester has gone from being inconsequential that year to today where it's over 50% of our clothing, and it's expected to just skyrocket from here. But polyester turns out to be problematic for about four primary reasons. So first is polyester is non-biodegradable. What that means is every bit of polyester that has ever been produced is still with us on the planet. Um, second, and this is uh, new and kind of devastating science, is that when we wash our polyester clothing, um, thousands of microfibers are shedding um, from the washing machine and going into our um, oceans. And in fact, the surveys that are coming out, there was one um, out of Seattle, they were looking at the fish sold in the markets, and one out of every four fish in the markets actually had this polyester. 
So we're not only wearing polyester, we're actually eating it. Um, third, have you ever noticed um, that you sweat more recently? Uh, that's not just a feeling. Um, unlike natural materials, which are breathable, um, polyester um, is not breathable. So when you sweat, your body just keeps all that heat in and you're uh, sweating more. Um, and finally, polyester requires enormous amounts of energy to manufacture, especially in comparison with all other natural fibers. And when we think about apparel's role in global warming, um, we also have to think uh, that polyester, even recycled polyester, is more energy intensive to produce than any of the other natural fibers. So it's not just how much clothing we have um, and what it's being made out of. There's also this compounded environmental impact um, in where our clothing is being manufactured. Because these already toxic clothes are being manufactured in countries plugged in to the most polluting energy grids. Um, and this is something that's really not thought, thought a lot about. So consider um, China, which is pretty much resounding where uh, most people's clothing was coming from. It's the country where we now import uh, the most clothing from. I think the statistic is about 40% of our clothes uh, that Americans uh, wear is made in China. But consider what their energy supply is, because basically when we purchase a product from a different country, we're purchasing the energy supply that they use. So we can think of the solar panels that we're going to put up on our own buildings, but if we're buying product from countries that are using energy sources like coal, which China does, we're buying, basically, their pollution. So in China, currently 75% of their uh, power grid is generated from coal. And in the US, and we certainly don't have the greenest electric grid, 33% um, of our power is coal generated. So as a result of the increase in production of clothing made out of energy-intensive materials from the world's dirtiest energy grids, the apparel industry now accounts for 10% of the world's total carbon footprint. Putting that pr into perspective, that's five times more polluting than all of the world's flight travel. And there's something about clothing that we kind of dismiss, I think maybe because it's considered girly or insignificant. But keep that in mind, it's 10% of the carbon footprint globally. But it's not just the environment that's being impacted, it's also the labor and human rights. And I promise you, we are almost to the good stuff. <laughs> but in the apparels industry race for cheap inputs, labor standards have also taken a back seat. So one in six people in the world work in some part of the apparel supply chain. 80% of them are women, and 98% of them are not receiving a living wage. The countries where this clothing is being made is being made specifically in places where there are low regulation. And it's the women and children that are being most impacted. In fact, the US Department of Labor does surveys on the um, products and areas um, that are prone to child labor um, and forced labor. And clothing has been identified as the central hotspot for child and forced labor globally. So yeah, we've certainly reached peak stuff. Our closets are bursting open, and the creation of this clothing pollutes our soil, sea, and air, 
and the workers in the industry are too often abused. Besides perhaps a couple of those CEOs that are benefiting, benefiting from this chaos, like all those in the value chain are losing, even us. Um, who's heard of the book, uh, the Marie Kondo book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Yeah, yeah. Who owns that book? Nice, okay. You guys are one of the seven million people in the world who have purchased her book. Um, so to me, the, the success of that book is a reflection of where we are in society because it's a reflection that we don't want all this stuff. We want to learn how to get rid of it. We want to learn how to live simply. We want to learn how to live beautifully. And the way in which we've been pushed to do it isn't doing that. We're reaching our limit. While that short-term pleasure of cheap fashion is actually neurologically a very real thing, we're equally experiencing that mental exhaustion of just accumulating so much stuff. I could also go into the fact that when you donate clothing, it actually is not a virtuous cycle. Um, I won't go into that. Um, there are other places to find out more about that information. But it's really this accumulation and it's this exhaustion of having too much stuff that we're just over it. And that was actually the situation I found myself in. It was not out of any, I wish I could say it was out of some greater virtuous something that I wanted to do with the world, but it, for me it actually started from a really selfish place. I had a closet overflowing with clothing in my very small New York apartment and I never had anything to wear. And I was really frustrated by that from a very selfish point of view. I felt like I was constantly shopping, um, but despite that, I never felt good with what I was wearing. Um, and so one day I just decided to attack my closet. I basically did a, you know, a somewhat of a version of what we've done um, together tonight, which is looking at my clothing, looking at where things were made, what it was made out of, what is polyester, what is acrylic? Um, and I remember that I um, had a linen sweater that I really loved, and I was like, I don't actually know what linen is. Do you guys know what linen is? Okay, cool, that was one yes. So I plugged in, um, in Google, I wrote in, is linen, and it auto-completed to, is linen cotton? Okay, li linen is not cotton, it comes from a totally different plant, um, but to me, at least I felt not alone, because if Google is auto-completing to Islin and Cotton, that means other people are asking that same question. So I started with this really personal drive to find better clothes. And I went to search for what is ethical and sustainable. Um, but when I dug just a little, I noticed that those words really didn't have any meaning. A brand could sell themselves as ethical and radically transparent and show a picture of their factory, um, but it turns out that that might not mean a lot. Because a picture actually doesn't equate to transparency. So transparency is publishing the names of the factories so that people, nonprofits, um, and other agencies can actually look to see whether what these companies are saying is actually reflected in reality. And a picture isn't demonstrating criti critical information like wages and healthcare coverage for workers. A picture doesn't reveal if a brand is dealing with shadow factories, which are these unaccounted for manufacturing facilities 
with often much lower standards than those photographed facilities. And also, a picture doesn't show if the cotton that is being used is organic or if there are uh, dye houses that actually are treating their water supply. Uh, and that's another big issue in this industry, because uh, it is believed that actually 90% of the uh, facilities that dye our material are actually just dumping that water into the local riverways. And when you look at the um, UN Sustainable Development Goals, a big piece of kind of the global goals is about fresh water, and apparel has a really uh, bad role to play in that. So what I found was that some companies were screaming ethical, um, but they often actually would have lower standards than companies targeted for bad practices. So meanwhile, I'm like doing all of this research, and this research morphed into this Google document with um, like each fact I was piecing together the state of this industry and everything that I've outlined. And I found that there wasn't this like organic standard. I just wanted to be like, okay, where do I go? What do I do? Um, and there wasn't even, like in looking at the manufacturing, there wasn't even the equivalent of like a lead certified manufacturer. Um, and I was really getting frustrated and I kind of, you know, I took note that there are all these like farm to table options and there's organic food options, but there really wasn't that in the apparel world. So with the help of a researcher, um, we developed that Google Doc of disparate information into a plan for how we thought clothing should be designed and made. And this plan we called the new standard. So we tackle the environmental, social, and personal issues of getting dressed through a three-pronged approach. One, create product from the user's perspective and not from artificial manufactured trends. So we think about, this is like in tech, a very similar way of designing things. We think about what we're doing on any given day and what style, cut, and material goes along um, best with those activities. Two, we're only using the highest quality material, natural materials like linen, wool, alpaca, organic cotton, and silk. Um, and we specifically mention organic cotton because uh, cotton is actually the fourth largest pesticide consuming crop. Um, and in a world in which 90% of companies do not know the origins of their raw material, we're working directly with the farm. Um, in fact, one of our ranches is in Oregon with our, our wool, it comes from Oregon. Um, and in that way, we ensure that harmful chemicals do not make it into our clothes or our water supply. And then finally, we're doing all of our production locally. Um, and this, uh, in this way, at the scale of our company, we can walk in and out of our factory and really have confidence um, in the conditions that are being set there. So that actually brings me back to all of us in the room today, the citizen consumer. And this is now no longer about the problem, but about what we can actually do about all of this. Because we are these citizen consumers concerned about the state of the world, but feeling powerless to change it. But if we begin to see ourselves not just as consumers, which is how we're always described, but as citizen consumers, and we start voting with our dollars, we really have the power to change the whole industry. So I want to conclude on the eight-point plan. <laughs> Um, of the things that we can do to turn not just this industry around, but really the world around. So the first is the thing that we did together today, which is checking um, the tags. Becoming familiar with where a product is made and what it is made out of is actually a huge critical step, just like 
being aware of what you're purchasing, of what you're wearing, of what you have in your closet. The second thing to do is when you are uh, buying something at a store, um, and this was just a crazy thing to see in real life as I went through this process, is just check the seams. Like, turn the clothes inside out and see if the seams are, like, made well. Because it is crazy if you go into these fast fashion places and you turn the product inside out, they are sometimes and often falling apart before they've even left the store. The third thing, um, and this should be simple, but it's not, is love what you buy. That's honestly like the number one thing I can recommend that people do. This isn't about a sacrifice. This isn't about saying never buy anything again. It's about loving the things that you buy. And if you love the things that you purchase, you're going to end up wearing them more. And that's really kind of the biggest thing that you can do. Fourth, ask brands questions. This is actually a way to use social media, if you're going to be on it for hours at a time, um, to do something positive with it. Um, as citizen consumers, you have the right to ask brands questions. Ask if their cotton is organic. Ask for the names of the factories making their products. Ask if they know where their dye houses are and what mills they use, and whether they are independently certified for sustainability. You think that it's just you out there asking a question, but I can tell you on the other side, I get to speak to brands a lot, and it's those individual questions that is putting that right positive pressure for them to seek out solutions. Fifth, really think about your purchases in terms of cost per wear. It's a helpful way not to get trapped by what looks like a cheap price tag and to focus instead on clothing as an investment. Six, with Christmas around the corner um, and Black Friday sales, which are once reserved for the day after Thanksgiving, already appearing in my inbox. Really, to think about what the holidays are all about. And the holidays are about the joys of community to me. And gifting is a beautiful part of that community-building endeavor. But it doesn't just have to involve the purchase of meaningless stuff. You could consider instead gifting an experience to help build community. Maybe like a gift certificate to a local restaurant or a tasting at your really amazing vineyards, which I got to experience this weekend. Or you could gift a whole new way of consuming, such as a high-end second-hand site like The Real Real or Tradesy. Seven, consider your role as a citizen, as a consumer, and as an investor. And this is applicable not just to clothing, but really to the, across the board. So vote for the government officials that support the issues you care about, and use the phone to call your representatives and make your voices heard. As a consumer, your spending power to support the companies, uh, you can use your spending power to support the companies that are doing it right. Um, and also, if you contribute to a 401k or have any other forms of retirement, I probably didn't think we would get to this today, um, your investment actually has a huge power to change industry. So I, I did actually um, a little investigation into Portland um, I believe your largest employer is Intel. Does anybody work for Intel here? Cool. Um, so they already offer a fund, an SRI fund, that's a social responsible investment fund. Um, so you can actually just speak to HR and have your 401k 
um, transferred to an SRI fund. And if your company doesn't already offer an SRI fund, um, you can ask HR to provide one for you. Eight, um, and this goes back to the beautiful concept of community that I heard tonight. Be daring and start to have the conversations about this with family, friends, and colleagues. Like You can be really powerful on your own, but you can be extremely powerful as a multiplier. It doesn't require thousands or millions of social media followers. Actually, behavior change is more likely to come from more intimate connections. The beauty about leveraging your role in all of these different ways is that companies really listen, and it only takes a few people to create big change. So this is often said, like, it takes a few people to change the world or whatever, but it's actually really real. And this is the data for me. I'm a data person, as you can tell, um, that really made me believe that, that saying. So researchers have found that when boycotts receive national media attention, so in 25% of boycotts receive national media attention, a company will react even if sales aren't affected. Companies are looking out for their reputation, and they really want to follow the trend. And you, the people of this Bridgetown church community, have the power to play a really enormous role in this. This like, chaotic, polluting, and unjust system really is entirely in our hands to control. What we, as citizen consumers, choose to purchase dictates what direction industry will go. And as we are magically tidying up, we may just realize that those hyper-trendy clothing really never actually worked for us. That what we're really looking for is clothing that is perfectly designed for our lifestyle, which uses organic material without harmful dyes and made by people who are paid fairly for their craftsmanship. If we use our dollars in support of that effort, we might find that we feel better in our clothes and we'll be using our power to clean up the planet. Thanks. <laughs>